Again, I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So please read along with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for uh, allowing me, uh, inviting us and uh, my family into your midst this Sunday night. Um, thank you for the friendship and the partnership that we have in the gospel and the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Doxology Church is a, we consider it kind of a sister um, church uh, to the seminary. And, and seminaries are kind of unique in the way that they do what they do. Um, we're kind of parachurch, and yet we're not just parachurch-like you know, some other ministries out there might be, and I think I can lose this at this point. Um, uh, but we actually kind of are deeply connected with the local churches. We have pastors who come and hang out in our hallways and our classes, and thank you for loaning Steve to us uh, that we can get that time together with him and, and develop that relationship. Um, Noellen's been on our campus and taking classes, Sun Ho. At, all of you are welcome. Uh, we consider part of our ministry, it's not just to like train up pastors, but our ministry really is to serve the church uh, in the D.C. area. So you're welcome to come um, or to participate in our women's Bible study on Tuesday mornings or uh, any of the other things that we do at the seminary. Please know that you are welcome. Uh, but tonight, I'm thrilled to be here and to get to open up with you First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. It's funny, uh, I've mentioned to several people that I was preaching on 1 Peter chapter 3, and every one of them who was a pastor said, oh no, which part? Um, I got the easy part, okay? You have the hard part. We have to talk about Noah and baptism next week, so I'm just going to let you have that, and I'm not going to address it at all. Um, but uh, we do get to kind of come back together again into this letter, and it really is a fascinating letter. It's one of my favorite letters in the New Testament and I teach the Old Testament, so I don't get to spend a lot of time in the New, but this is one of my favorites, and so it's a joy to be able to bring God's Word to you from it. So with that said, let's open up in prayer, and then we'll dive into it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself, that as we come to your Word, we know that we are coming to you, and that through the power of the Spirit, we can rightly evaluate it as your Word, and we can rightly understand it. You're not a God who hides behind the mist, hides away in the clouds. You're not at the top of a mountain, and only the, the rare few get to find you there. But you come to us, and you reveal yourself to us. And we can say, as a result, that we truly know you. We don't know all of you, but we truly know you. And we pray, Lord, you'd bless us as we consider your word today. Give us wisdom Give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and mouths that can respond as we have been this evening in praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I know you've been going through First Peter, and so I just want to do a little bit of a, of a return, just as kind of a summary, to locate the passage that we're looking at tonight. 
Okay? You could just dive into this passage, but I think you might lose sort of the thrust of what Peter's saying. So bear with me if I guess just give kind of a quick recap, uh, as it were, of, um, of where Peter is taking us in his letter. Okay, of course, as you know, Peter's letter is a letter to the church. Um, it seems to be uniquely to Gentiles in the church. Uh, and he's addressing them because of some of the suffering some of the persecution, some of the hardship that they are experiencing because of their faith around the Mediterranean basin. Now, one thing that we know about this time and the audience to whom Peter's writing is that they were a, a kind of an incredible, incredibly small minority, uh, counted amongst their other Roman countrymen. They would have been considered a small minority. They would have been considered kind of an oddity. But not only that, their faith, the thing that they held dear, the thing that kind of set them apart from everyone else, actually set them apart in some quite destructive and hurtful ways. Christians who worked as household servants were expected to serve the household in the way, and the relationship here really is something like working for a corporation, but here you're supposed to serve the household in such a way that you Worship and honor the head of the household, the patriarch, okay, in this setting, but you're also supposed to honor his gods. You're supposed to honor his pagan beliefs. And so Christians who were servants in these households were expected to give up their faith in Jesus and were kind of looked at as suspicious because they hadn't. Maybe they weren't really part of the corporation. They weren't part of the family household in the way that they were expected to be. We know that Christian women who were married to unbelieving men struggled with a similar conflict, a conflict that arose out of the fact that they were supposed to honor the gods of their husband. But what were they to do if they claimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? As a result, Christian women were kind of seen as causing conflict and disrupting the social systems of their towns and their villages. In short, there was very little in the environment around them, these Christian Gentiles, that would give them much hope. They were, stopped, they were seen as problematic, as maybe a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. And this is why Peter's clear throughout the letter that he's trying to encourage them. He wants to encourage them in this situation. He wants them to be able to hear the hope that he is presenting before them and take hope in it even in light of the struggles and the suffering that they're experiencing. Now, one thing that's interesting is is how he does it. You see, Peter's writing to Gentiles, Gentile Christians, and yet notice some of the language that he keeps using throughout the letter. He keeps using language that is distinctly set aside in the Old Testament for Israel. For instance, he starts in 1 Peter 1, and he says, I'm writing to you exiles, right? You see, the Gentile Christians wouldn't have thought of themselves as exiles. Exiles, that's what happens back in the 8th century B.C. when Assyria and then later Babylon comes and takes Israel into exile, right? But he's saying, you're exiles, you Gentiles. Elsewhere, he cites Deuteronomy, and he says, actually, you're a chosen race. Actually, you're a holy nation. He cites Exodus, and he says, actually, you're a royal priesthood, you Gentiles. He cites multiple passages from the Old Testament, and he says, you're actually God's chosen, chosen possession, his cherished possession. 
You see, what Peter's saying is that if you are in Christ, if you pray like we just prayed, that the blood of Christ atoned for your sins, that your sins are placed on him and his inheritance, right, his inheritance as the faithful Israelite is placed on you, then you can count yourself amongst the children of Abraham. You can count yourself amongst the holy nation, the cherished possession of God. Because they follow Christ, they can call themselves the people of God. Now, as a result, Christians can be faithful and they can be generous even when they are oppressed, even to their oppressors. He says, servants, you work in a household where you're supposed to worship the gods of your patriarch. Well, you can't do that. But guess what? You can work unto that patriarch as if you're working for the Lord because your identity is found elsewhere. Your identity is found in Christ. Wife, you can serve that unbelieving husband and love him and care for him because your identity is found elsewhere. You're of the children of Abraham. You're the prized possession. He actually doesn't stop there, as you know from the sermon series, right? He says to the husbands, husbands, if you're Christians, husbands, you can actually push against the misogynistic prejudiced nature of Roman notions of marriage and recognize that your wife is a co-heir in Christ with you. That was countercultural to the Christians of Peter's day. You see, because your identity is found elsewhere, he says, you can actually go to your oppressors with generosity and faith. As a matter of fact, the generosity of faith appropriately reflects the love that you have received as a Christian through your salvation that has been hard won for you in Jesus Christ. He didn't consider fellowship with the Trinity as something to be hoarded unto himself, right? This is Philippians 2. I know I'm switching to another apostle. Okay, but he didn't count it to be something he could be hoarded, right? Jesus gave it up for your sake. Paul says, go and live likewise. Peter says, go and live likewise. See, this is a major theme for Peter that he keeps coming back to over and over again. This idea that the suffering of the audience that he's writing to is actually the work of God to sanctify them and to test them and to strengthen them. And therefore, they need not fear. They need not think that this is the end of the story. But rather, they can approach them, the people who are oppressing them, with faith and generosity. By the way, I'd point out, he's actually not distinctly talking about physical persecution. There was that in the ancient world, but actually not during this time. There were Colosseums, but that's not what was going on here. This is a different situation. This is the sense that every Christian was dealing with in the Mediterranean basin, that they didn't fit. They didn't have a say. They weren't ready for prime time. They were illegitimate, suspicious, and dangerous. Maybe even the fiber of society was threatened by their existence. I think we don't have to stretch our imaginations too much to think about where this might occur in the world today. If you've been on missions trips, if you're aware of world news and global events, you know that the church is persecuted around the world. What was true in Peter's day is is, is not somehow solved now. We didn't figure this out with the Enlightenment or something. This is still something we struggle with. 
matter of fact, because of my job at the seminary, I get to sometimes, from time to time, go overseas and train pastors and church leaders in other areas. And I remember being in China, this is about four years ago now, is right before the recent spat of persecutions kind of came back up. That was about three years ago. But four years ago or so, I was there, and I was with a group of church leaders from all around China. And you can imagine, China's a big country. I'm talking about people from thousands of miles away. And we were meeting to talk about Old Testament theology, and I had this wonderful week with them, about 30 people in the class. I mean, this this is a big seminary class. And at the end of the week, we all got together, and we were saying our goodbyes, and we were praying for one another, and, and I prayed that the Lord would strengthen them as, as they face the opposition of the government in China. And then it became their turn to pray, and they started praying for me, and one theme that I noticed over and over again is that they prayed that I would be faithful in the face of the opposition to the church that I run into in the United States. And I have to admit, I was kind of embarrassed, right? I was kind of, you know, uh, no, I'm not persecuted. You guys are the ones who are persecuted. You don't, you don't need to pray for me. And, and after the prayer was over, I asked them, I said, Wait, that's interesting. I, like, where did that come from? What made you say that and pray that way? And to a T, they all said, you need to understand something. In China, while there is this kind of government opposition, there's also a kind of newness and a freshness to Christianity, as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's got, they didn't use this language, but I'm, I'm translating. They said it's got kind of a countercultural hipness to it, right? It's kind of subterfuge in a way. All the young kids are doing it. It's kind of the way you rebel against your parents. But they said, with you Christians in the West, Christianity is kind of associated with folly. It's kind of backwoods. It's as if you're not really... You know, you're not really participating in the modern world in just quite the right way if you're a Christian. And they said, we watch that. We see your shows. We see your movies. We watch that. We think, oh, that must be really hard. And i got to admit, I was, I was embarrassed. It was kind of embarrassing that they would pray for me in that way. But I think we have to remember that not all persecution is physical. Not all persecution is political. Persecution can be cultural. It can be emotional. So I think we can understand and maybe even relate in a way to this church that Peter is writing to. So that brings us up to the passage today, and I just want to go through briefly and look at how Peter then takes this whole background that he's just developed for us. Gentile Christians, you're the children of Abraham. As a result, you can respond to suffering with faithfulness and generosity. He then moves to this very specific topic of suffering and giving a defense of your faith. And I want to say that he argues three things about suffering and the resultant ability to give a defense of your faith. And the first one is this, okay? So i got three points here. The first one is this, that as Christians, we are not just looking at our suffering, but we're looking at a farther horizon, okay? As Christians, we are looking toward a farther horizon. The idea is this, Christians live in light of the transcendent. We say with Isaiah, yes, the earth is the footstool of the Lord, but guess what? The heavens are his throne room. We're aware of a God who transcends beyond space and time. As one of the old confessions says, he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the kind of God that we worship. But he's transcendent. 
He exists beyond the world that we see around us. He's not outside of it, but he is beyond it. There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor who I've gleaned a lot from over the years. And I think he gives us a helpful way of thinking about this. He argues that everybody has a frame, okay? Think about framing a picture. If you're going to take a picture, you, you frame the picture, right? You get the square right in the right place, you know, whether you're using a camera or, a, or, or your phone, and you just get it all right so everything that you want to be in the picture is in the picture. And by the way, some of you are sort of inherently good at doing this, and some of you are preternaturally bad at doing this, okay? You know what I'm talking about. You know who you are, okay? And when you frame the picture, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're putting the square up so that you can get everything you want into the frame, Charles Taylor says this about modernity. He says the problem that modernity offers us, the problem that secularity offers us, is that it only presents us with an imminent frame. In other words, it only presents us with a view that can deal with the things that you can feel with your hands, that you can see with your eyes, that you can hear with your ears, that you can taste with your mouth. It is framed up in this world around us. Modernity says, this that you can see is all there is. That's the imminent frame. And yet what he says is, interestingly, throughout most of human history, and even now today, this is Charles Taylor writing, even now today, when people kind of whisper how they really feel, they actually admit that they also have a transcendent frame. That there is sense, there's a sense of meaning and value and love and desire that goes beyond what I can feel and touch and see and hear. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. He actually says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he says, God has made the world beautiful, but guess what else? He's made the world beautiful, but he's also put within you, and then the word can actually be translated either an eternity or a universe, okay? Hebrew word is ha'olam. He's put a universe inside of you. He's put you in the world, but he's put a universe inside of you. He's put an eternity inside of you. There's this sense of the transcendent. And Christians have voice for that. Christians recognize that there's a God who has transcended this universe. God, the Christians recognize that there is a life for them beyond the imminent frame. This is, for instance, why we can say with Jesus, or hear Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, things like this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How are they blessed? How are they happy? Because that's what blessed means here in this passage. How are they happy or joyful? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's beyond this eminent frame and the transcendent frame. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Why? Why should you be happy? Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, because great is your reward in heaven. You see, for the Christian, this imminent frame where these sufferings are taking place is not the end, okay? Because we have this concept of a transcendent frame. So that's, that's point one. We look to a farther horizon. We look to a farther country because of who we are in Christ. But point two is this. As a result, that means that our present sufferings, our present sufferings, O Christian, are not the whole picture. 
Our present sufferings are not the whole picture. Peter said this over and over again. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. He keeps coming back to this thing. Your sufferings aren't the whole picture. And there's two reasons for this. So here, under point two, I'm going to give you two little subpoints. okay? The first thing is this. When you suffer, remember that you are suffering in light of a creator God who knows you and loves you and is directing your footsteps not only to his glory, but to your happiness, okay? to your joy. So even when you suffer now, even when you are tested for your faith, remember there's a God who transcends this universe, who knows you, can sympathize with you, and is working about all things to your good. Isaiah 8, verse 12 through 13, has this fascinating little passage. This is where Assyria has just taken the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. And Isaiah's watching all of this happen, okay? You can just, it's a bad time, all right? Isaiah's watching this happen, the prophet, and the Lord gives him a message about what he should fear. That's a fearful thing. The northern kingdom has gone into exile. It's been taken over by a foreign nation. And what does Isaiah say? He says this, Do not call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. That's a hard preaching. right? That's a hard message, teacher. The Lord your God, He is forever and ever. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is all-powerful, and He is the one who is good. As you suffer in this imminent frame, let Him relieve that burden for you in a way. Let Him take that up from you. A dear saint with whom I, I was able to minister while he was on his way to glory as he was dying of cancer, near the end when things were really hard. If you've walked with someone through this kind of thing, you know what I mean. It gets really bad at times. It gets really dark. And I remember one point, he said, you know, the easy answers all elude me now. I don't see how this is going to turn out good for me somehow, like I'll get better and it'll be a miracle or something. That's probably not going to happen. But he did say this. He goes, but I know that my Redeemer has a perfect plan for me. And in that alone, now do I find my hope. I don't know what it is, but he's got a perfect plan. See, for the Christian, these momentary sufferings are temporary. They're not the whole picture. But it's not just because our God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It's more than that. It's that we actually believe in a world to come. And whether we use the language of heaven, or we use the language of going into glory, or we use the language of the new heavens and new earth, what we are doing is we're getting, giving voice to this belief that we have in Christ that our experience transcends the present moment. Lewis does this so well. He explains this so well. C.S. Lewis, in books like the, the Last Battle of the Chronicles of Narnia or The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, the saints go to heaven uh, and, and, and when they get there, they realize that the grass there is the grassiest grass they've ever seen, right? They realize all the grass they've ever seen before was just kind of a dim reflection of the grass in heaven. 
right? That, that, that the, the sun, the light that's shown in the sky back on earth is now what is now kind of expressed as true light, right? It's what light was always supposed to be. See, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says it this way. He says, that present suffering, it's not even comparable to the glory that awaits you if you're in Jesus Christ. It's this idea that in the new heavens and new earth, in that body imperishable that we gain as those who are in Christ, the suffering of this life will slowly either fade away or they will become stories that we retell to glorify God. I think there's something to that. Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, has famously said that there will come a time when all sad things will become untrue. And I've always kind of disliked that phrase, <laughs> partly because I don't think that's right. I don't think it's that all sad things become untrue. All sad things become glorious. Christ on the cross is sad. The risen Christ bearing the wounds of the cross is glorious. You're suffering and remaining faithful through cancer. That's sad. In the new heavens and new earth, it's a story of the glory of God finding expression in the world around you. It's not that all sad things become untrue. It's it's that they become causes for worship. So firstly, we have a farther country that we're looking for. We look to a farther horizon. Secondarily, that means that our present suffering is not, um, it's not the whole picture. It doesn't fill the frame because there's a transcendent frame. And then thirdly, as a result, we have the freedom and the power to give a defense. Yeah, I, I wanted to do all this so that we could get to this point of giving a defense because that, of course, is what this passage is about, right? But you have to understand why he's saying this. You're not just giving a defense because you better be willing to fight. You know, Jesus fought for you. You better be willing to fight for him. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't you know your identity doesn't lie in this persecution? Your identity isn't tied up in them telling you how backwards you are. Your identity isn't tied up in the suspicion that they throw in your direction. Your identity is tied up in Christ. And as a result, you can give a defense of the reason of the hope that you have within you. We do need to make a little bit of a distinction here between the cause of your faith and the reason for your faith. I feel like we need to point this out lest we get a little confused. You do need to remember the cause of your faith is one and one thing only. It is the Holy Spirit giving your heart life that you might declare that Jesus is Lord. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I'm going to give you that citation because it's interesting. If you don't believe me, look it up, okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the Apostle Paul says this very interesting passage that I don't hear people teach very often, but it's fascinating. He says, if you say that Jesus is accursed and you mean it, that means you do not have the Spirit within you. But the flip side is true as well. If you say that Jesus is Lord and you mean it, it's actually the Holy Spirit saying it within you. Paul doubles down on this idea. He says, actually, I'm not even the one who's living anymore. I'm dead. Christ lives within me. Galatians 2.20. 
you want to talk about what gave you faith, it is the Spirit giving your heart new life, making you born again. What's interesting here, though, is that I don't think that this is what Peter is talking about. He's not saying, therefore, if someone asks you, why do you have joy, why do you have hope, you say, because of the Holy Spirit. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying something a little different, right? Because he's talking about a defense, and in a defense, what are you doing? You're in a conversation. A defense is articulating what I would say is the reason for your faith. And the reasons for our faith are diverse and many, and they're beautiful to give an account of. You see, reason encapsulates all of those variety of answers, whether they're emotional or autobiographical or intellectual or logical. Maybe you were in an apologetics discussion and you were arguing for atheism and and some wise Christian kind of walked you through the, the logic of your argument and slowly you saw your arguments dismantled and you became a believer. Maybe you were raised in a Christian family and you never knew a time when you haven't loved the Lord your God as your... Savior? Maybe you were raised in a Christian family and it wasn't until you were 25 that you actually knew the Lord your God as your Lord and Savior? I'll tell you what, working in a seminary you have, where you have Christians just coming through your doors every year, I've probably heard every story I can imagine for a conversion story. Whether it's the drug addict who reaches rock bottom and there's a Christian there who gives them love and affection, whether it's that kind of long discussion with a friend who's a believer over years, or maybe you weren't even talking to anybody at all. You just kind of woke up one morning and you realized, you know what, I I think I believe all this stuff. One of my colleagues, uh, Randy Newman, teaches evangelism in this area. He's a great teacher of evangelism. But he actually just wrote a book um, basically talking about his, his dissertation, which is a study of a bunch of different conversion stories. It really is amazing. There are as many conversion stories as there are people in any given church or any given building. But here's the thing. Giving a defense for the reason of the hope that is within you, that doesn't necessarily mean being able to give a good logical philosophical argument. What it does mean is telling someone, here's why I believe. Here are the doctrines that stood out for me. I was talking to a friend who was a convert from Islam the other day, and she said this. She said, I knew Islam, and I knew people said that Christianity was wrong, and so I went to study Christianity, and I realized it better explained the world around me and the way out than Islam did. You see, that was her reason for the faith. She was able to give a defense. I think that's one of the reasons why we love to gather together as Christians and hear each other's stories. And I think Peter is telling us to do that. Why? Because we look to a farther horizon. Why? Because this present suffering and the opposition that we face because of our own belief is is, is not the whole picture. And this leads us and empowers us to be able to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is within us. And Peter's clear too. He says, don't go out there, don't do it arrogantly. This isn't about going out to war and destroying your enemy but you're doing it with that spirit of Christ, the one who emptied himself. You're supposed to go out likewise. Advantage your brother, advantage your sister to your own disadvantage because that's how Christ does it. But always be willing to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that you have within you. We can do it 
because we live in light of that farther country. We live in light of that farther horizon. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this word to you. Lord, I pray that as we consider Peter's words, that you would strengthen each one of us. I suspect everyone in this room has had opportunity to give defense, a defense of the reason for their hope, a defense of their faith. Sometimes we shy away, Lord. Sometimes we're not sure what to say. I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you'd strengthen us, you'd embolden us towards this work that you would guide us, Lord, that that we might be able to clearly articulate the, the hope that is within us. And Lord, at the same time, I pray that we would be strengthened knowing that it is that farther country, it is that farther horizon that draws us forward. And it's because of our belief in that that we can properly and rightly engage with this present country, with this present environment in which we live. I pray that you bless everyone here at Doxology Church. Strengthen them, Lord. Let this church be seen as a, as, a, as a mighty testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ in Arlington and in Northern Virginia and the Washington, D.C. area. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.